Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity uh, we have again to sit under it and gather around it and to hear you speak to us, and especially with this passage, John 17, to hear the Lord Jesus pray for us. Oh, Father, this is this chapter is so much bigger than I could ever handle in one sermon, and, and I'm not going to try, I, but I ask that you would just kind of pull out for us some encouragement um, for, for things that uh, would encourage us that Jesus prays for us as his people. Um, so would you help us to hear his voice um, as we look at this word together this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we have uh, focused over the last few months a, a good deal on, um, on our suffering and on pain. Last week's uh, sermon was in Psalm 43, was talking about praying through your pain. Um, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder, what is, what is Jesus doing while I'm hurting? Um, what is Jesus doing while I suffer and while I wait or, or, or just while I'm working or, or while I'm living the life he's called me to live until he comes again? What, what is Jesus up to up there? Uh, John Piper once said that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of maybe three of them if you're aware of any of them at all. Um, and then he said, the parts you do see and are aware of sometimes just make no sense. But uh, this morning I want us to think together about this. There is one thing we can know, at least one thing we can know that Jesus is doing while we're hurting, suffering, working, living life. Um, as we wonder what on earth is happening, we can indeed, we can. In, at least know uh, one thing that Jesus is doing in heaven. And as I said, next week we're going to look at uh, a handful of other things that Jesus is doing in heaven. But today, we're just going to focus on this one thing. While we're praying through our pain, Jesus is praying for us. Um, he's uh, interceding. That word is, is a word that uh, we'll talk a little bit about. It. it means to intercede is to approach someone with a petition with a request. Um, it's uh, used five times in the New Testament. Um, one time it's used about a, a people petitioning a king. Uh, one time it's used to refer to Elisha, the prophet, appealing to God, interceding to God. Um, two times Jesus is said to be interceding for us as his people. And then one time... Uh, the Holy Spirit is said to be interceding or praying for us. Uh, for example, that one is from Romans 8, 26 and 27. Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not what, know what to pray for as we ought. You ever felt that way? I don't know what to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
So the Holy Spirit is praying for us. And then Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let that sink in for just a minute. When you don't know what to pray for yourself, God the Son and God the Spirit are always praying for you. And John 17 is the place where we can find out, okay, so, so what is it that Jesus would be praying for me as his, um, a member of his body? What, what is it that Jesus prays for us as a church, as a mountain fellowship? What is it that Jesus prays for all of his people, for all of his church? John 17, for centuries now throughout church history, has been called the high priestly prayer. In fact, in your Bible, it may have a little heading that they've added that says the high priestly prayer and then John 17. Um, and, And the reason is because Jesus is our great high priest. Let me remind you about this from Hebrews 7, which is which is the other place where we're told that Jesus is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.23, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. In other words, you couldn't just have one priest who continued because they kept dying. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is our great high priest and he's not only the priest who sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat for the atonement of our sins. He is the sacrifice. It was his blood that he brought into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for our sins. And because he lives forever, Jesus, our great high priest, is always making intercession for us as his people. And the reason why so many have called this the high priestly prayer is because that in John 17, there's a, there's a couple of priestly things that we see. There's more than these, but here's two of them. The high priest would pray for, uh, before he was going to make offering for the atonement of the sins of the people, the high priest would pray for himself, for his fellow priests and family, and then pray for the people of God. Well, in John 17, Jesus prays for himself, for his disciples, and then for the whole church. Uh, The high priest also would uh, be consecrated or set apart for service to God uh, through some special washings and cleansing rituals, and then anointing with oil. Well, in John 17, Jesus prays to his Father and says, for their sake, I consecrate myself. So this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. Um, And since this is the prayer that he prayed while he was with us on earth, I think it's safe to say that this is the prayer that our great high priest is continuing to pray for us even now. 
So that's why I want to look at it a little bit with you this morning. I'm not going to try to do an in-depth study of John 17, so you'll be disappointed if that's what you're hoping for. Uh, I just want to hit some highlights uh, of the four things that Jesus prays for his people. And then uh, when I'm through with that, and hopefully it'll be, uh, it will be shorter than normal, uh, I've asked our four current active elders who are not on sabbatical to come and to pray a prayer for you, for Mountain Fellowship, based on each of these four things that Jesus prays for his church. And so that's where we're headed today. Um, if you think about the context of why would Jesus pray this prayer, he's praying it the night before he was crucified. This is chapter 18, he goes to the garden and he's arrested. And that begins his, his trip to the cross. Um, of all the things he could pray for, he prays for some pretty deep things. Um, consider what he had just told the disciples. Think about what they're going through, having heard what he's been saying to them uh, throughout the night. John 17 is at the, long, at the end of a long uh, discourse where Jesus has been teaching and talking to the disciples after the Last Supper that night, supposedly still sitting in the upper room. Here are some of the things Jesus had been telling them in recent days and then in just the hour before this prayer. He said, I am the good shepherd. I will lay my life down for the sheep. Disciples are curious. What does that mean? He says, I will be betrayed by one of you. He said, in a little while, you will see me no longer. I am going to the Father. That did make them ask the question, wait, where, where are you going? He said, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. If they persecute you, remember they persecuted me first. He goes on to say, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Wait, wait, wait a minute, Jesus. Whoever kills us? What, what are you talking about here? He says, for now you will weep and lament while the world rejoices but later your sorrow will turn to joy. What, what are we going to be weeping and lamenting about? So he's got them pretty stirred up at this point, wondering, what is going on? I thought we were following this mighty Messiah. But he's talking about some strange stuff. Him dying, uh, him going away, us being persecuted and even killed and weeping and lamenting. Um, Jesus knows their hearts are troubled and, and he knows he'll be leaving them uh, and going on to heaven and leaving them on earth. He, he knows that he'll be sending his community out on his mission. Um, he says over and over again in John 17, the phrase the world is used over and over and over again because he knows he's leaving the world and leaving them in the world to be not of the world for the sake of the world. So this is all going on in Jesus' mind and their mind. And so what does he pray for? With all of this context, right before he goes to the cross? Does he pray for health and wealth and the good life, the American dream, or the Israeli dream, whatever it would have been for them? Does he pray for an Instagram life where everything looks perfect? 
I got my trophy wife, I got my trophy life, I got my trophy kids, my amazing meals and my amazing wheels. I mean, does he pray that I will, that I will get like, a lot of likes? That my life, that I will be uh, liked? Does he pray that I'll find, that we'll find Mr. or Mrs. Wright? Does he pray that we won't lose the people that we love and that uh, we won't be losers that no one loves? He just doesn't pray for the things I want him to pray for. No, he prays that what they will face, um, they, he, he knows that what they will face and what they need is different. And so he prays these four things. He prays that they will be awed by his glory. He prays that they'll be preserved from his enemy. He prays that they'll be sanctified in God's truth. And he prays that they'll be unified in God's fellowship. So those are the four things we're going to look at briefly. And then your elders are going to pray those things for you. I'm going to spend most of my time on the first one. So don't get nervous when I spend a lot of time on this one. And then you think I'm going to do the same with the others. Um, But Jesus prays for us. He prays that we, as his community on his mission, would be in awe of God's glory. Because he knows that's what we need. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. He says, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then he says, uh, at the end of his prayer in verse 24, he says, Father, I desire, if Jesus says I desire something, we should listen. What does what Jesus desire? I desire that they also, he's talking about us who have heard the message the apostles preached, I pray that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Paul later says that Jesus will come back one day and he will be marveled at. Is this what I really need right now, Jesus? I need to be awed by your glory with all that I'm facing. He starts the prayer and ends the prayer talking about glory, the glory of God. And I think this is the key thing that he prays for his people, that we would be awed by his glory. Uh, The great Puritan preacher John Owen used Joseph and his brothers as an example of, so how does glory help me in my, with my daily struggles? Um, listen to what he said. He said, when Joseph had revealed himself to his brothers in Egypt, he charged them that they should tell his father of all his, Joseph's, glory in Egypt. That's Genesis 14, 45, 13. He said, I want you to go home And I want you to tell my father about all my glory here in Egypt. And that word glory in the Hebrew is the word kabod. It means, it 
it's a word that means heavy um, because uh, it became, this heaviness became uh, glory because when you think of a, a wealthy person who has rich garments and jewels and gold hanging up, they're just weighed down with their wealth. Um, and we think of people who have uh, possessions and power and position and prestige, we kind of sense that there's this glory about this kind of person. It's what we do to celebrities or, or, or big people who have a lot. We somehow are intimidated by their glory um, because they're heavy with value, so we think. But Joseph says, I want you to encourage my father who's been worried uh, I want you to encourage him by telling him about my glory in Egypt. John Owen goes on to say, he did not do this to boast of his own glory, but because he knew how happy and satisfied his father would be when he knew uh, what a glorious position his son was in. Similarly, Owen says, the Lord Christ desired that his disciples should see his glory in order that they might be filled with joy and happiness forevermore. Only a sight of his glory and nothing else will truly satisfy God's people. So think about this. Jacob was up in Israel. Remember, there was a famine in the land. Jacob, Joseph's father, his hunger would be satisfied and his emptiness would be filled eventually when he got down to Egypt his hunger would be satisfied, his emptiness filled because he was related to the man who was left for dead by his own brothers, but whom God raised out of a pit and a prison to become Egypt's great provider. Sounds like Jesus. Jacob's fears would fade, his worries would wither, his, his confidence in God's character his, as God as the one who promised, remember God promised him, your people will go down to Egypt for a little while. 400 years later, I will bring them out. And Jacob's looking around saying, we're all starving to death. Where is God's promise now? So Jacob's fear uh, about what God had promised and whether God would keep his promises, um, these fears would fade and his confidence in God would increase because he would hear that his son as the one who is seated at the right hand of the king of Egypt, was in, was, had the power and was in the position to preserve God's people. Everything was going to be okay because my son is seated at the right hand of the power of Egypt. And I'm going to go there. And because I'm related to him and he has all this glory, I'm going to be okay. I think that's part of why Jesus wants to pray that we would be awed by his glory because he knows it will comfort us in our hunger and our fear and our wondering whether God really keeps his promises. He wants us to gaze at his glory. Paul later would say in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he would say, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, the glory of Jesus, are being transformed into the same image, into Jesus' image, 
from one degree of glory to the next. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That word for that word that Paul says, beholding the glory, is, is really to gaze. It's, um, Tim Keller says it's like gazing in a mirror. Keller says, if you looked at the person to your left or your right, the way you look at yourself in the mirror, they would hit you. They would slap you and say, quit looking at me that way. Because in the mirror, we're pouring over ourselves, looking to see what's wrong, hoping there's something right. We, we gaze. We longingly look. That's how you look in a mirror. And this is how Jesus wants us to gaze at his glory. Robert Murray Machane said, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. The point is, we are to gaze at the glory of Jesus and glance at the glory of everything else. Gaze on the glory of Jesus. Remember the, uh, remember the series of movies, the Pirates of the Caribbean? Jack Sparrow, right? Jack Sparrow had a compass, did he not? If you haven't seen the movies, don't worry, I'm about to tell you the part that matters right now. He had a compass, and there was something wacky about that compass. It would not point due north like all compasses are supposed to, to point to true north. This compass went all over the place. And the reason was this compass had a supernatural power, and that is the compass always pointed toward whatever its owner most desired. And so the compass would point this way and that, and Jack would follow it this way and that, always heading toward what he most desired. It's interesting to me that uh, um, John Owen also said uh, about God's glory that the hearts of believers are like uh, like a magnetized needle which cannot rest until it's pointing north. This is the hearts of God's people. Our hearts cannot rest until we're pointing north. So also a believer magnetized by the love of Christ will always be restless until he or she comes to Christ and beholds his glory. Only a sight of his glory and nothing else will truly satisfy God's people. I was so convicted by this this week because um, my heart is restless because it's it's pointing all over. It finds glory over here and glory over here, and I want that glory and I want this glory and I, I want glory for myself. But my heart will never come to rest until it's settled and pointing toward the glory of Jesus because that's what my heart was made for is the glory of Jesus. He is what's weighty. He is what's worthy. He is what's valuable. And Jesus points this out and says there's two parts of his glory he wants us to be awed by. He wants us to be awed by the glory of his cross. And he mentions that first in the first couple of verses. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. What's he talking about? 
the hour he's referring to, he's referring to the betrayal and the beating and the brutal execution that was about to come. And that that would bring him glory. Jesus would be glorified in his crucifixion in giving himself as the substitute sacrifice for the sins of his death-deserving people. That's going to give him glory. That's where his glory is. It was by this cross that God's people would come to have this eternal life, Jesus talked about, knowing God and the one who sent him. And, and to know God, there is not this intellectual, I know God is wise and loving and kind and good. No, it's, it's a knowing from the heart. And I think my problem is that I know God is wise, but I'm not in awe of his wisdom. I know God is good, but I'm not in awe of his goodness. I know that he loves me, but I'm not in awe of his love for me because I worked so hard to get you to love me. And if I was in awe of the glory of Jesus' love for me, I'd be okay if you didn't love me. If I was in awe of the wisdom that Jesus has in running my life, I'd be okay with the way he's running my life. And I'd say, he's running my life instead of ruining my life. It's at the cross. It's at the cross. It's at the cross that Jesus' love, Father's love is white hot with glory. It's white hot with glory. If you're ever in doubt, of God's love for you. Look at the glory of the cross. Let your heart point there and go there. But not just the glory of the cross, it's the glory of his crown. He says, glorify me in your own presence, Father. He's, he's thinking about where he's going after the cross and the tomb and the ascension. He's going to be restored to his glory. You know that Psalm 24 uh, says, Who is the King of glory? The Lord God, mighty in battle. He is the King of glory. I imagine that might be the song that the angels sang when Jesus walked back into heaven after he ascended, after his resurrection. Who is this King? Here he is. The King of glory is back. And Jesus' desire, he says in John 17, 24, my desire is that they might be with me there and see my glory. Friends, when you get weighed down by all the things that weigh you down, remember where you're headed. You're going to see things that will make all of this pale in comparison. Paul said our sufferings cannot even be compared to the glory that awaits. So Jesus is praying that for you. He's praying that you would be awed by his glory. Because that's what matters most. Quickly, the other three. Jesus is also praying that we be preserved from God's enemy. See, we have an enemy who doesn't want us to see his glory. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers that they would not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have an enemy, and his desire, his goal, is to keep you blinded to the glory of God because the glory of God is what you and I need most. Um, And so Jesus prays and he says, Father, keep them. I I have kept them. I have guarded them. The world has hated them because they're not of the world. Father, keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the evil one. Because the evil one wants to keep them from my glory. And then that phrase, the evil one, could also be translated, keep them from evil. Because it's not just the evil one out there, or the world out there that wants to keep you from seeing the glory of God. It's the enemy within, your own sin nature, your own me-first heart. Jesus is praying that God would preserve you from the world, the devil, and your own sinful me-first heart that wants your glory and not to see his glory. Jesus is praying for you. He's doing battle for you in prayer because he knows you have an enemy. Next, Jesus prays for his community on mission to be sanctified in God's truth. He said in uh, verses 16 to 19, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Sanctify means set apart. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate, I sanctify, I set myself apart that they also may be sanctified in the truth. This is the positive counterpart of the last thing that we said Jesus prays. Jesus prays, I want you to keep them from the evil one, but I want you to keep them in your truth. Safeguard them from evil, but sanctify them. Set them apart in your word. To sanctify something is to set it apart for the service of God. And and so like the utensils and the, the priests in the temple were sanctified, they were washed and they were anointed with oil that set them apart for this set-apart service that they would do that would glorify God. Jesus wants us to be set apart from the world for the sake of the world. He talks a lot in here about um, they, uh, they're in the world, but they're not of the world. But he, he wants us in the world for the sake of the world. We'll talk about that in a second, but He's asking that God's word would preserve them as God's people, um, would set them apart for service, and that God's word would be the thing that they serve to others. We live in the world, but not of the world, by the word of God. We're set apart from the world by loving, learning, and living in the story of Jesus God's word is where we learn what reality really is so that we can live in it. The true story of the world. Jesus is praying that God's word will set you apart as one who lives to see your story swallowed up in his story. He's praying that your heart and mind would be shaped by his heart and mind found in his word. 
And then we live in the world for the sake of the world by the Word of God. We are set apart for the sake of the world by loving, learning, and living in the story of Jesus. It's in God's Word that we learned how we live on mission with God so that others might come and be awed by His glory as well. It's in this book that we learn how to fulfill our mission to be beggars who tell other beggars where we found bread. Jesus is praying that God's word will set you apart as one who lives like Jesus, one who gives himself or herself for the sake of others so that they might see his glory and live in awe of it. And finally, Jesus is praying that we as his community on mission would be unified in God's fellowship. He prays in, in verse 11 that, that, we may be one, uh, that they may be one even as we are one, Father. He prays later that they may be all one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. As we're on this mission that he sent us to accomplish in the world, he wants us to be a community like him. We've talked before about how the Trinity, um, we are created in the image of the perfect community the Father and the Son, who all love one another. We were made in that image. We were made to live in that kind of community. And so we as God's people, Jesus is praying that we would model that. Because when we do, we show people there is a reality that they're not aware of. There's a real community of love and service, self-giving love and service that exists and the only reason we can live and love that way is because we've been loved that way by one who lives and loves that way. And so Jesus is praying that we would be caught up into that community. And it looked, you know, it, it's a very practical thing. Um, Francis Schaeffer says, if you want to live as that kind of community that shows the world there is a God and that he sent Jesus... Two very simple things. Tell each other you're sorry and forgive each other. Confess your sin to one another, against one another, and then forgive when someone confesses their sin against you to you. It sounds just like the gospel Jesus sent us out to preach. Repent and believe the good news that there is forgiveness of sins in Jesus. Don't just preach it, picture it by the way we live together. Jesus is praying that we would do that. And now your elders are going to come pray those four things for you. So I'm going to invite David Vernetti first. All of you come on up at the same time. David Vernetti is going to pray first, and then Richard Nelson, and then David Payne. And then Tracy Smith, and I will close briefly. So enjoy, because Jesus, through these men, 
is going to pray for you right now. Father, as I stand before you and pray on behalf of my brothers and sisters of Mountain Fellowship, I do not offer these prayers from a position of strength, but from a position of weakness. I offer these prayers as much from me and my heart as they are offered for the hearts of those whom you have called me to be a shepherd. Each one of us was created in your image. We were created to be amazed, to be moved, to be satisfied, simply put, to be awed. C.S. Lewis wrote that if I find myself, find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. In our quest for life, I pray that you would not allow any of us to be satisfied with the things you have created. Help our hearts to long and to continue to search for you, the creator and the one who can truly satisfy. For you are the one by whom and for whom all things exist. Help us to draw near to you in awe. In Jesus' prayer in John 17, he wants us to be awed by the glory of his cross. On a worldly level, that makes no sense. The hour had come for Jesus to be betrayed, beaten, and brutally executed, but he was praying about his glory. Jesus was glorified in his crucifixion and giving himself as a substitute sacrifice for the sins of his death-deserving people. Father, do not let me, do not let us, overlook the glory of your cross. It was by the cross that your people have come to have eternal life, to know you as the one only true God and Jesus Christ who you sent. I pray that, you would, that we would see the cross as glorious because it is the way, the only way, that we come to have life itself, the life we are made for, the life we had lost because of our sin, the life that only comes from knowing all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. Help us each to be in awe of what Jesus has done to reconcile us to you. Jesus' prayer was also a foreshadowing of the glory he now has and one day we will see. Father, help us to be in awe of the glory of his crown. Jesus already had experienced this glory because Jesus enjoyed this glory from before the world existed but he set it aside to become a man. In this prayer, Jesus knew that for us to see his glory will fully satisfy us forevermore. Do not allow us to forget. Remind us of the one who is exalted above all. Remind us of the one that has been surrounded with glory, majesty, and power. Remind us of he who is seated at your right hand with all his enemies being made his footstool. It is the same Jesus who, while he was in this world, was poor, despised, persecuted, and slain for us. It is the same Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us and washed us from our sin in his own blood. Since we value his love and realize what he has done and suffered for each of us, we cannot but rejoice in his present state and glory. Blessed Jesus, we can add nothing to you or the work you have done. Father, I pray that all of us who stand before your body at Mountain Fellowship would be in awe of the glory of Jesus' cross and his crown. Do not allow any to teach in Sunday school or a Bible study or from the stage or from the pulpit 
that are not in awe of what Jesus has done to reconcile us to the only true God. And when those days arise where we lose sight of you and your son, I pray that your spirit would remind us, that our brothers and sisters would remind us, so that we do not settle for the creation when we can be in love with and loved by the creator. Dear Heavenly Father, we now lift up a prayer for this congregation that we might be protected from the evil one. Lord, we face an enemy who does not want your glory to be seen. As Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He seeks to distract us, to preoccupy us with false lights that are not the true light of the glory of your gospel. He's constantly attempting to numb us to the ever-present life-altering radiance of your glory. We pray that you would allow us to see the light of your glory, to allow it to transform us such that we would flee evil temptations. God, we pray that you would keep us resting in the light of your glory so that we might individually resist Satan's attacks, attacks that focus in on our personal weaknesses, those particular areas where our flesh still battles the spirit. We pray that you would protect us as a church community from attacks that would, that would fracture our unity, our peace, and the love that testifies to the light of your glory. We pray that you would give us wisdom in conforming our worship to your desires, that you wouldn't allow us to fall prey to either the temptations of heartless ritual or restless, distracting innovation. Help our worship to faithfully and simply reflect your glory so that believers and unbelievers might be drawn closer to you each week. Lord, you've made us more than conquerors through Christ. Help us to lay aside all that hinders us from that reality. Help us to live squarely in the light and truth of your gospel so that we're able to resist Satan's assaults and so that, as Paul says in Romans 8, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, you have set us at Mountain Fellowship apart to live among our unbelieving neighbors on Signal Mountain and in Chattanooga in the distinctive way of the gospel so that they might come to know you, Lord. Lord, we can only live in this distinctive way if we are sanctified or set apart by your word. Help us to believe your word, to love your word, Heavenly Father, and to devote ourselves to reading it, studying it, memorizing it, meditating on it, praying it, applying it, and living it. Help us to speak your word to our friends, family, co-workers, classmates, and neighbors. Help us as parents to teach your word to our children at home. Help us as nursery volunteers to speak your word to the infants and toddlers in our care. Help us as children's chapel volunteers, Sunday school teachers, and youth leaders to impart your word 
to our preschoolers, elementary school children, youth, and adults. Help our pastor faithfully preach your word to us. Help us to have your word on our hearts and minds as we worship you together each Sunday. Help us to have your word on our lips as we meet as fellowship groups and Bible studies throughout the week. Lord, teach your word to us so that, we, so that it might come alive within us. Set us apart for the mission to which you have called us and empower us to live according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, thank you for reminding us this morning that you are in love with us. You love us so much that you sent Jesus, your son, to tell us how much you love us. As Jimmy mentioned this morning, Jesus came and showed us who you are, a heavenly father deeply in love with his children who constantly prays for us. You have said that you are like a mother hen who spreads her wings over her babies to shelter them. You're like a shepherd who's deeply disturbed if one of us wanders off. So you won't rest until you go looking for us and bring us back. And you're like a father that runs out to grab us the minute we allow you to as we come back to you. And then you throw us a party. You're the kind of father that teaches us, that corrects us, that encourages us, and even celebrates us. And then you tell us to be like this to our family, to our children. So, Father, I pray for Mountain Fellowship this morning. Give us an increasing love for each other, for the people sitting right next to us, in front of us, behind us this morning, that we would love others as you have loved us. Your son tells us and tells all of us in John that the world will not believe in you if it cannot see us loving each other well. So I pray that you will help us search our hearts and ask ourselves, am I loving well? Those of us here this morning who are husbands, search our hearts, search my heart, and may each of us ask, how well am I loving my wife? What am I missing? How am I not leading in a way that makes my wife more beautiful? Show me how I can love her like you do. Search the hearts, Lord, I pray this morning, of every wife sitting here. Speak to them, and may they pray and ask, Lord, where is it that I am not loving my husband well? What does he need? Show me how I can love him like you. And every one of us here who are moms and dads, may we pray and ask our hearts, where am I missing my children? Keep helping me, Lord, to see them as you do. Help me to love them better and better each day, like you. And every child here at Mountain Fellowship this morning, sitting right here, may they pray and ask, Jesus, am I loving my mom and dad well? Am I listening? May I honor them, Lord, Help me to love my mom and dad like you do. And for every one of us, through our small groups, through our friendships here, I pray you would search my heart, all our hearts, and see some of us, see if some of us need to ask forgiveness for not loving well.
do I need to offer forgiveness? Is there anything between any of us at Mountain Fellowship that keeps us from having the freedom to love and live out righteousness and grace and mercy toward each other in a fun and free way? Father, press these questions on our heart. Search our heart and help Mountain Fellowship, a bunch of fellow strugglers, grow into a body that loves well and in turn show the world that we are one with each other and one with you. Amen. Jesus, thank you for praying for us. Help us to remember it and believe it.